Yo, we popping bottles. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Yeah. Let's go. It did. <laughs> so that was the sound of uh, Mireille and I making a Instagram boomerang of beer bottles being opened because we're celebrating the fact that Danielle Levy is back with us <laughs> for another round of questions about nutrition and health and well-being. And uh, you heard it here first, poop. <laughs> yes. There will be a poop question. Cannot wait. Yeah. Hi, Danielle. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Great. I'm so happy to be back. <laughs> this is so exciting. The first time we met was really, really, really fun. It's a great experience. Well, that's why you're back. We loved it so much. Um, what we're going to do today is we have questions that have been sent in by people. And um, they had questions that cover a variety of topics. And uh, I think if you're ready, we're going to start with the first question. Amazing. Shoot. I love okay. it. Okay. Mirai, stop drinking beer. <laughs> there is a health and wellness show right now. <laughs> it is. Sim All right. Always question number cute. one. Question number one. Yes. So every spring, my digestion comes to a standstill. No matter how much water I drink, no matter how many vegetables I eat, I get very bloated. In the end, I do a round of probiotics. Should I just do the probiotics or is there something else obvious that I'm missing? Great question. So there's no actual um, solid evidence that shows that probiotics uh, helps with constipation specifically, but it does help regulate the gut. It does support the gut in any, so if there's any kind of imbalance, it does help. So, oft, so you know, in terms of um, just people's, reporting that they do actually have help uh, with regulating elimination um, through probiotic use. There's no negative side effects. It's just essentially giving your body more good bacteria, um, which uh, supports uh, all, all body systems. I mean, we need probiotics. We need like those good bacteria in our gut to help regulate like immunity and lots of different things. And actually now there's more and more, it's actually a huge topic around uh, our mood and uh, brain and, 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 um, uh, metabolism in reference to our gut flora again is such an early, there's not a lot of solid research so there's there needs to be more but the way I look at it is if if that if you take the probiotics it does help you regulate that's fantastic because you found something that's actually doesn't have any you know unlike laxatives and stool softeners which have lots of negative side effects probiotics are just great they're great and then in terms of probiotic rich foods there's like sauerkraut and miso and tempeh uh, and even kimchi. However, of course, sauerkraut and kimchi, cabbage, cruciferous vegetables are in themselves a bit gazy, so you don't want to have too many. <laughs> what is sauerkraut? Sauerkraut is a shuk what is it in shukrut? French? Shukrut. Ah, the shukrut. Yeah, okay, so, yeah, no, and any, yeah, so anything that's fermented, it supports the, the proliferation of good bacteria in your gut. Um, in terms of it being uh, the onset is around spring. I think that's interesting because I, I don't think that there's necessarily anything about spring that you might, ex you know, to explain why you experience that, but it just shows that every person is different and that you've observed this pattern, that's legitimate. And so you can anticipate that that's going to come up for you with season. A lot of people get, of course, in the spring, like more uh, respiratory issues and other kinds of like, or maybe skin issues that come up whenever there's a change of season. So there are, and even so you know what, actually um, probiotic supports because it supports the whole body, not a bad thing to do around. Um, uh, one of the things just to say is that there's a, a lot on the market that are not refrigerated and those are absolutely useless because 
probiotics mm-hmm. are living and the minute that they're ah. not they're they need to be kept in the fridge so BOK is a local uh, Montreal based company that's fantastic they make really high quality probiotics that need to be kept in the fridge however anyone that's lactose intolerant has to be careful because there's um, there's like milk in that product so just to say if you are going to spend like 20 30 dollars on a probiotic uh, for whatever reason uh, make sure it's a you know a good quality one that's kept in the fridge and actually one thing I always tell clients is that anytime you're on antibiotics which which gets rid of all of the you know bacteria, the, the bad and the good. You need to replenish um, with with the probiotics. So let's say you're on the round of antibiotics. Wait two hours after you've taken um, them, and then take a probiotic. Because if you take it, mm. of course, too close together, mm. it like counters one and not the other. Um, but it's uh, it's only supportive of the gut. So. I often meet people who uh, have to go on antibiotics for whatever reason, and then all of a sudden they start to find that they have a really irregular um, gut, and like all of these issues start coming about. And I think a lot of it is with with the sensitivity to the antibiotics. So it's a good way to support the gut. Uh, what about kombucha? Good question. So technically, yes, that is also a fermented product, but it's high in sugar. It's sugars. So it's added sugars. Even if it's not necessarily, people might argue that it's not necessarily high in sugar, but it's an added sugar. That's where, that's how the fermentation process happens. The yeast and all that, and all the um, sort of chemical processing happens from that. And so I think to take it as a health food, in my view, is is kind of BS. Um, if you enjoy the taste of kombucha and you want to have it once in a while, go for it. But if you're kind of using, like, you know, in this case, you're trying to obtain more, you know, probiotics for this gut issue, I wouldn't start drinking a lot of kombucha for that reason. Um, and one last quick follow-up question. I have uh, one friend of mine I know, he takes a probiotics p- a capsule every single day throughout the year. Wow, yeah. Yeah. It's good? Straight up? Absolutely. I mean, it's expensive. I'll say, you know, the one downside I can think is that it's expensive. I I can't, from what I understand, there's really no harm. There's no negative side effect. You're just giving your body extra uh, good bacteria. Um, If it's a good quality one as well, I think that's great. It actually helps to prevent um, getting sick. And, you know, often when people go to a, a... a third world country or like even to Mexico or wherever where the bacteria mm-hmm. is different in the water and you might get sick. It's another, um, the, they advocate sort of taking a probiotic 10 days before you leave on a trip like that. And then even 10 days after you come back to make sure, sure in terms of parasites, all kinds of things that can really affect, uh, be supportive of the gut. So it's, this is it. There's no harm, but that's actually, I mean, that's dedication to the gut right there. Her day <laughs> taking probiotics. Respect. Respect. <laughs> <laughs> What food should we ban at all costs? Well, I don't really believe in that there's good and bad foods. And I think that this attitude that we have around food, this fear around food, that we need to ban food and that food is good and bad, I think it contributes to this overall cultural phenomenon of us feeling afraid about what we're eating. I think it's kind of a new thing and it, you know, it's, not the healthiest. I think from my perspective, doing you know, holistic nutrition, it's not just about the food. Um, I think we talked about that even at our first yeah. um, interview, but it's also our relationship to food. So the minute that we use these kind of, this kind of language, even with ourselves, it's important to kind of look at that and see where is this information coming from? And is this something that I really need to be afraid of? Or uh, yeah, just to explore that a little bit further. So I don't think, like for example, sugar is 
uh, and soda is a huge thing that governments like in the UK and North America are mm-hmm. discussing banning. And there's this, you know, because of the um, obesity epidemic, there's this kind of, uh, it's in my mind, a band-aid solution. It's kind of like, okay, let's take away this product that we know contributes to um, many issues, but obesity is one of them, which is um, putting a huge strain on the, on the healthcare system versus what I think is getting to the root, which is education. So if you look at on parallel, there's the, you know, tobacco and cigarette industry where there was, we didn't ban cigarettes. Cigarettes are still on the market, but there was education, educating people at smoking causes cancer. So as a result, people stopped to consume and started to quit smoking. Mm -hmm. So that's to me the most effective thing versus banning something. And so if we start to explain to people and educate, which is really missing, we don't have nutrition and health and food education in our, in our schools. I mean, even publicly, there's so much miseducation. And so I think that if people weren't just reprimanded, like sugar is bad or soda is bad, but they understood the impact on the body and they understood, you know, that their risk of diabetes is higher. And what does that look like? And then I think as a result they would just stop consuming as much soda and and hope you know hopefully and then the other point i think is that if you were to ban something there'd just be something else you know we would we would find something else to to consume that would be unhealthy so i just think that that's not the solution um and I'm always an advocate of replacing and sort of crowding out. So instead of saying, uh, oh, I can never have this thing. Okay, think about maybe an alternative. Let's say you always want to have the your soda. Find, you know, get a, you know, the, like right now we're drinking sort of um, bubbly water and you can make your own flavored sort of bubbly water soda or something like that. Um, and the other thing is that makes me think about the idea of cravings and people often when I meet with them we talk about cravings for things and that would be maybe connected to to foods that you might want to ban for example and I think you know there's yes there's physiological cravings that come when people are actually missing nutrients and malnourished but typically it's a psychological craving and from what I understand that is connected to people you crave things that you're in your mind you're not supposed to have that in your mind are bad foods and so the more we can actually have a neutral relationship with foods because actually foods are all neutral you don't have this kind of craving and this whole duality this whole the good food is good or bad or drink is good or bad and we need that it requires to be banned like if someone has a soda once a month that's not a problem right it's the fact that you have 2 3 liters a day and this is where the issue is so it doesn't need to be banned necessarily. I think it's just, you know, our relationship with these foods and sugar, I should say, it's not that simple because sugar is actually quite addictive and like tobacco, we're just starting to understand what that looks like, like the bio, the, the physiological effect of sugar. And so it is challenging. Um, so I appreciate the sort of interest, um, on, from the government to want to ban these things, but I still don't think that that's necessarily the answer. I was watching TV and I was a nutritionist on saying that you shouldn't eat carbs in the morning because it will make you fat and that you should really focus on protein. But I really like eating my bran muffin every morning. It's homemade with dark chocolate chips in it. And that's what makes me feel satisfied and ready to start my day. Should I not be having my muffin and having protein instead? Okay, well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I think just firstly, whenever you're getting information from you know TV or online, you have to, I think, be a little skeptical and not skeptical, but um, curious and kind of investigate a little bit further who is this person that is, is giving information. And I think whenever there's these sort of rigid 
suggestions don't have protein for breakfast or never have carbohydrates or cut out all, you know, that to me, right? Yeah, I, I personally am not a fan of that. I think, you know, it leads to that topic we were just discussing around like fear around food and and you know these really challenging relationships people have with food and cutting things out it becomes this stressful thing and food is it's not supposed to be stressful and it's it's really not that complicated carbohydrates i can't imagine that you would not want to have um good quality carbohydrates for breakfast so actually the muffin i'm not sure what she puts um into that to that muffin or um what the ingredients are but i imagine that it is actually not whole food uh, carbohydrates. So it's not like a whole, you know, whole rolled oats um, that you can make, you know, like a, um, a granola or a oatmeal, which is good kind of, or like the healthiest kind of fiber rich carbohydrates. So not all carbs are created equal. And so the refined flours, um, the, you know, that are high glycemic, high in sugars, those you actually might not want to have you know, every day for breakfast, for example, but you can have it certainly once in a while as a dessert um, with chocolate in in the the muffin. Yes, there's added bran, but I I personally don't think that's the most optimally nutritious nutritious breakfast um, and to stick to the whole food carbohydrate sources. So our bodies, we need carbohydrates for energy. Once we have those good quality carbohydrates, we have energy. And in the First, for the first meal for breakfast, that's what you want. You want some energy, but you want to have stable energy and not have a spike and crash. So the refined carbs from like those flours um, that you might use in, in a muffin, even if it's homemade, which obviously homemade is is way healthier and a better choice than store-bought. Typically, you can control the amount of sugar, salt, fat, um, but you you will have more of a spike. When you have the whole, like the whole rolled oats, for example, or even a pseudo grain, like a quinoa or buckwheat instead of um, rolled oats, you have stable, more stable energy because there's actually more proteins in that. So you want to add a bit of protein to your breakfast. You want to add a bit of protein to every meal, but carbohydrates are your friend. They give you, you know, that, that energy. And if they're a whole food, the whole vegetable, fruit, whole grain, legumes, because they have the fiber, the fiber helps regulate the sugars in the carbohydrate. And so it gives you that stable blood sugar level. So I think that that's, um, it's, this is where the linear, uh, conversation around food is, um, very limited because people just think carbs are good and bad and it's not like that. And it's really a question of the quality and also the quantity. So if we're talking about the rolled oats, that is a healthier option, but we don't want two cups of rolled oats. You want like a half a cup of cooked rolled oats. So certainly if you were to have two, three cups of granola and it weight is, if weight is an issue for the person that that's something to look at. So you might want like half a cup of the rolled oats and then some, you know, chopped apple or some berries and a handful of walnuts or hemp seeds for the protein and the omega fats. So you have a balanced meal. So I think whenever this approach of no carbs or no fat or no protein is, is the opposite of my whole shtick, which is balanced, right? Because to me, optimal nutrition is having a balanced meal, but it's having the appropriate ratios. So if you have a lot of protein or a lot of fat, you know, that's not ideal. Um, So I think the idea is every person is different. And so if someone is highly active, they will need more protein um, and they can take down more fat. But if you're, most people are sedentary and they don't need to have that much protein. And we're typically consuming way more protein than we need to in this part of the world. And so... Um, yeah, I think that's it actually emphasizing the research actually shows that diets that are higher in whole fiber rich carbohydrates, people have a lower and more balanced BMI. They have lower rates of you know, disease. So it's actually the opposite in, from what I understand. Um, I, and it's just, I think it's, it's interesting too, in that 
there's something very particular about North American wheat, right? Sure. Because I notice whenever I visit my family in Italy, the I can eat like the most ginormous plate of pasta there. Or every morning, you know, you have il cornetto. And there, I don't have digestive issues. I don't feel bloated. I don't feel like I don't gain. It's, it's a totally different, and maybe it's just like the quality of the wheat, the quality of the water. But here, I feel like the wheat that we consume, um, and especially if you already have a sensitivity, you're just going to blow up. Abs- such a good point. And it's fascinating. And I have so many clients that report the same thing specifically about Italy. And it's, it's a, it is amazing. It is amazing. And it makes sense. I think, yes, they are different foods. So not only carbohydrates, not all, not all carbs are created equal, but even when you look at the food and the wheat specifically, so like this one grain. Um, and yes, I think that there are yeah, parts of the world where it is not as processed. It's not genetically modified. It's not a huge cash crop um, that our bodies recognize it more as real food. Like farro is the original wheat before it was highly processed beautiful food, high in protein, lots of nutrients. And so people who might be sensitive to, you know, um, processed white bread or, or refined um, gluten will have farro and be absolutely fine and handle it fine. So you can actually, yes, yeah, so you can actually, um, it's, 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 again, it's kind of looking a little bit closer and understanding that each person is different and it's the quality and the quantity and experimenting. So buying some whole sprouted organic sprouting also really helps the digest, the digestion of these grains. So buying some whole organic um, sprouted bread and having a slice. So often what happens is mm-hmm. I think people will have like a pile of pasta, a huge quantity. And so then it's maybe not just, and they're not used to maybe having as much of like that kind of carbohydrate. So then they feel uncomfortable and they have digestive issues, but if they were to have a quarter cup and then the rest of their plate or bowl was filled with veggies, they might feel different. So you could do an experiment. And so I think that's that's how people start to realize. But it is a great point because we ultimately don't want to exclude and cut things out entirely. Our bodies will also become even more sensitive if we do that. So the more that you can kind of have a little bit, if it's safe for you and you have a good quality and good amount, um, that's awesome. Especially if you are to travel and then maybe you don't have much of an option and you have to get some pasta or bread or, you know, and but you, you'll be fine. You're not going to, your stomach is not going to freak out because it's mm-hmm. kind of used to having some, of course, there are some people who are celiac, who are specific, actually very much allergic to all wheat. So is farro the same thing as spelt? So farro is the original wheat and spelt is also a derivative of wheat um, before it was highly processed. So sometimes you'll find um, emmer, what is the? Uh, Emner. Emner. And einkorn. Einkorn. We were looking at those words are difficult. And those are also uh, variations. Um, Ultimately, because these are like the OG wheat, (laughs) the original whole grains before they were processed, they're all, spells included, they're all easier to tolerate um, on the gut. So if you are to be making or you're going to be buying some whole organic bread, spelt is actually one of the ones that people typically um, find easier to tolerate. And because the grain, um, including farro, uh, is... Um, is, is hasn't been processed in a way and hasn't been modified in any way. It's just inherently naturally higher in protein. So gluten is a protein. That's essentially what it is. And there's lots of different kind of proteins that are found in... I didn't know that. Yeah. No, and that's why it's so ridiculous. It's sort of like that's, that's, it's, that it's so bad in itself. It's just a protein. If your body specifically doesn't tolerate it well. So I think isolating it... Um, 
I, I still think that's curious. I, I'm not sure if the science is so solid. You know, there's nothing wrong or unhealthy about gluten in itself. So I think that the way that we've processed um, these wheat over over years, the way that we're growing it, um, like you said, that's where people are noticing a big difference. How do you feed a picky toddler and how do you get them to eat something when they don't want to eat it? Wow, this is a very common question. I actually work with a lot of um, typically mothers who come and are very, very concerned. And it is an interesting topic, I think. The minute that, even looking at the word picky. So I appreciate, I'm not actually a mother, so I'm not a parent. So I know that it's, it is challenging when you're a child, you care a lot about this kid, you want them to eat, it's hard, they're, they're you know having a hard time. But even labeling this as picky, it kind of creates a little bit of um, stress, I think, uh, the relationship right there. And the kid picks up on that and that perpetuates this whole um, stress around food and eating. And I think that one of the first things is to understand that a child is responding to their environment. It's not about blame. It's not about blaming the child or the parent. It's about understanding. And so I like to look at how the parents eat and are they eating healthily? And what's the really what's the environment at home like around food? And so if the emphasis and the focus is just on this kid eating these foods and pressuring them, first of all, the response is kind of naturally as a kid to kind of say, well, no, you know, and I don't want, and I, they're pushing away. And if the, from my experience watching families who just naturally eat healthily and they all eat together and they have fresh veggies and the parents are constantly eating these foods, the kids typically eat that way as well. And if you look for centuries and in other cultures, kids don't have, there's no kids meal. Kids, have, they all just eat whatever it is, the rice, the beans, the whatever, the, you know, the veggies, the fruits. There isn't this phenomenon of picky eater kids in other cultures and at other times. And I think a lot of that's to do with the fact that we think we should feed children somehow differently or that they have a choice. It's like, this is what we're eating. This is what's um, available. And you introduce them at a young age and consistently. So you're consistently exposing them to healthy whole foods and you're not pushing it on them, even energetically, there's no stress around it. You're sort of saying, we're presenting this and you're getting excited about it and you're yourself eating children really learn through observation. So if you're happy and you're enjoying this delicious sweet potato and edamame beans, they want to put it in their mouth. You see this response. They literally react and they want to do what you're doing. And so I often will look at parents' diets and they're not eating very well. And so the kids are kind of looking at the parent and, uh, and again, it's, I'm, there's no blame. It's just kind of understanding how children learn. So I, w I would really take a step back and remember, um, that first of all, there's no, it's never too late. I think sometimes parents feel like, oh, I have this picky eater child and I'm not, they sort of stop trying introducing foods. They just, well, he doesn't eat it or they won't eat it. And I think we can't be reactionary and we can't, it's challenging. I know it's actually harder for the parent in a sense, but to consistently be aware of what is the environment around food and making sure it's positive and making sure it's not stressful, because I think that can also in the future contribute to some sort of disordered eating uh, in kids in the future. If there's all this pressure and stress around food, I don't think that's a healthy kind of environment, you know? And and um, so, so yeah, should be aware of that. And also just... If, if it's a collective effort where the whole family is trying to eat healthily and the emphasis and the pressure is not on this one child, which is, in my mind, not fair. 
I think everyone has to eat more healthily. And also if you have that food available and you just don't have the crappy food, because they'll, the parents will say, well, all they'll eat is a chocolate croissant or all they'll eat is sugar. Well, maybe don't yeah. have that around. Don't come from that farm, right? <laughs> and and, yeah, and yeah. sure, like, don't, I mean, that it's not that can't, kids can ever have those foods, but this shouldn't even be an option. And so I think if we're trying to focus on everyone in, in the home, educating them and giving that exposure, like this is healthy eating, you have whole food, whole food, just real meals, cooking. They see that. They see you eating the food. And like even younger kids, if they're if it's purees and if they're, you know, eating more like baby food, um, still getting different colors and getting them engaged in that and having, you know, some some pear and some sweet potatoes, some lentils, and you can put some like nut and seed butter. You can expose them to these healthy foods really early on and their palate will adapt to that. If their palate is just used to refined sugar, they're really not going to be happy eating broccoli. But I see kids who grew up eating broccoli and they're stoked. They will not stop their shoving avocado in their face. I mean, they love it. They love it. And that's what they've grown up with. So it's totally possible. And it's, I mean, that's why I think it, it bears a question why some kids maybe are picky and, and some are not, you know? And I think you have to kind of look at the bigger picture of the family so situation. So is there also something really important to be said about your reaction when the child doesn't eat something? Yes. Like if the child isn't eating something, is it probably a good idea to not have a freak out? 100%. From my experience working with parents, it's just to get them to take to take to be mindful of that so it's sort of like okay, recognize that that's only going to probably perpetuate. I mean, also if that's what you've been doing and see how the reaction has been, is it working for you? Like, is they, are they responding any better? So maybe try something else. Right. It's oh, like mommy's you can, mad. I better eat oh, this one. Right? Oh, no. Right? And, and I mean, it, the pre- peer pressure on eating. And I know that it's challenging. Um, but I, yeah, absolutely. I think being aware that, first of all, your child is not going to starve. And, you know, I mean, like, let's just, for most cases, it's like, you know, if they learn that they can't just have anything they want any time of day. And, you know, and I think, especially when they start to get older, um, getting them engaged in food also really is helpful because it's like the more that you give them this. So one of the tricks is there's this perception of that they have some control over the situation. We have three options. These are what we're, so you choose which of the three things we're eating up to you, but this is what we're eating because all of these three things are healthy. So you're kind of playing into the psychology of it, but absolutely not to freak out. And again, just, just on, you know, in the basic sense of that is not effective because we, they, they, people know that it's not effective to freak out over it. Hey, uh, I would like to know, um, do we eat more healthy today uh, as compared to like 50 years ago? It seems that uh, there's more and more people in poor health. Yes, and all kinds of chronic disease that's uh, increased. We are certainly not eating as healthily as we were 40, 50 years oh, ago. Yeah. No, we're not. Did you think, did you feel that we were? I don't know. I guess it's just because there's such... There's so much information now, yeah. and the access and to the information. People look so crazy about what they are eating right now. So exactly, that's the paradox, and, it's and the am- exercise freaks too. Like, there's just yeah. such an obsession with health. Well, that's what's so fascinating to me is because it shows you that yes, with this onslaught of there's so many food blogs, there's so much nutrition, you know, pseudo nutrition information. There's so much. This industry is huge, but does that actually? Uh, does that actually end up being that people are eating more healthily? Not really. I mean, that's the thing is that, and are people more comfortable with cooking? Not really, even though there's all of this 
you know, wealth of information, like you're saying on online and this industry of products and packages, all of this, this does not actually mean that people are eating any healthily. We know that the industry itself, I mean, that's what's, again, sort of the whole contradiction is it's producing, it's, it's a moneymaker. So people, they're selling things. We don't need things. We just need to eat real whole food and cook our own meals. And we've stopped doing that. Our whole lifestyle and our whole culture has changed so that now we don't have time to cook before 40, 50 years ago. It was just part of our lifestyle. So it wasn't a question of, oh, I'm going to go eat at a restaurant for five days a week, or I'm going to buy this packaged processed food and heat up my microwave meal because we were just cooking real whole food. And so as a result, we were eating more healthily, automatically. And so we don't need all these, you know, quote unquote, healthy products or these, you know, intense exercise regimes. We were just moving more. It was just a regular healthy lifestyle. And so it's kind of a misconstrued, I think there's this um, perception that we're maybe more health oriented, but we're really not. And I think the more, interestingly, again, we're spending so much time on technology and not doing these basic human things like food shopping and cooking, which again, it was just something that our parents grew up with, our grandparents, everyone just made meals. It wasn't a question. And so you weren't, didn't have all the added sugar, fat, salt, all the processed stuff, and you weren't eating at restaurants all the time. That was like, that was once in a while you would go out to eat. And so this is kind of how we've really stopped eating healthfully. And, um, the more that we come back to the basics, the more that we come back to how we actually lived, which who knows how that will go, but just to be aware of uh, these these lifestyle habits that are so important to eating a healthy diet, I think is to take ownership of your diet, to say, I'm gonna buy the fresh food, I'm gonna go shopping maybe twice a week and make some food, make some soup, make some salad, make some of my breakfast and not constantly eating out and, and buying like stuff in a package, these fake mm-hmm. food. I love Jamie Oliver, who is such a huge advocate of all of this and he's been such a spearhead, everyone knows, but he just, he doesn't, it's a quote that I love from him. He says that healthy food doesn't have ingredients, healthy food is ingredients. And so I, I think that that, basic simple truth is where we need to kind of come back to and so when you look at your fridge or you look at in a given day what are you eating how much of it is you know something with ingredients versus real whole food so I think yeah I think that we are we are in an interesting place that I think on one hand there is a small you know minority and I have to be reminded this because I'm sort of in this bubble of health so I always think everybody eats this way but no I do know that it's actually a minority of people, but it's growing. I think there is there is certainly a lot of positive um, coming out of the amount of information that's out there. It's getting people thinking. I just think the media literacy is is important. So yes, there's a lot of information, but is all of that legitimate? And there's a lot of products. Do you need any of those products? Maybe not. So just being skeptical, what's what? who's selling this and do I need it? And is this really what health is? And again, back to education, if we started to incorporate, and that's a really big part of what I do and I'm really passionate about sharing this information just so people can have a base and understanding of what is healthy eating. And it is simple, so then they can easily, more easily navigate all of this so-called health information and say, this does not really apply to me. And also, uh, one thing that has always fascinated me is um, because you talk about media and questioning the media. And that's just, I think, not only questioning the direct messages they send you, but also the indirect messages. Because there is nothing I hate more than a commercial telling me that I don't have time to prepare food. And so many ads are like, you don't have any time. Here are pre-peeled carrots. 
Wow. How hard is it to peel a carrot? And also, let's not peel a carrot because all the nutrients are in this peels. <laughs> well, but no, but I thing. know, I know. But it's good, we, point. We have good to, point. We have to like we have to counter the indirect messages that are coming. Right? And actually, knowing the history of of food and understanding that when we this whole introduction of, of packaged processed foods and and the industrialization of food where there's no more growing it's become exactly like a huge industry and, and the industrialization happened around you know the world war ii where this was part of the economy like this was a huge um money maker was we were gonna make we were making packaged processed foods that we could sell to send to the troops and actually all these women were they were not war they were in factories making producing all of these foods and the minute that the war ended they were all sent out go back home into you know the home but no longer were they cooking for their families because the media started then to say, you don't have time. You need to start buying these package processed things for your family. And our, the whole culture changed around the family. Like and TV how dinner. Exactly, dinner. exactly. And just even canned stuff and whatever. And just all of these things that were not, that were pre-packaged and pre-made. And so looking at sort of the industrial complex or the, 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 the economic historical background of that so you understand it's not about health. This is about industry and, and people making money off of things. And you're not making money off someone buying, you know, their own carrots and broccoli and cooking it. Or, or you know, even in another sort of part of the, the war era was grow your own. Growing your own because they didn't have, you know, the, the money. So it was like, okay, we need to make sure that we're, we have enough food. And then the tragedy is that once that, you know, sort of phase ended where then, you know, the economy started to build, people stopped growing their own. You know, and then people stop having their own gardens. And so interestingly, now we're coming kind of more full circle where there's this intuitive part of us that really wants to be able to control our food and grow some basic foods um, ourselves. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of interesting just to see the whole historical uh, context of that. And then to come back to the previous question, like might it not be even more fun for children to eat food if they see the food being grown oh, yeah. and if then they become part of the food preparation, right? Absolutely. Like that's, that's the ideal. Dream. It is the dream and it's so simple. And, and it, that, that connection totally changes their relationship and our, everyone's relationship to food. And it's, it, yes, it's romantic and yes, it's like, oh, well, we, wouldn't we all love to, but amazingly, there's so many of these projects happening all over the world and in North America, you know, in, in the States, people taking, you know, this grassroots movement of people really, and in Montreal, amazing projects happening, people growing um, gardens, and you can grow a lot of food in a small space. I mean, you, I mean, from the Italian background, this is something you grew up with, the nonna, the grandparents always have tomatoes growing and basil and stuff, and it's, it's beautiful, and so that's something, and you're a food-loving person, and you mm -hmm. grew up with that, that connection, and so it is, it's, but it's very cool. My mother has an industrial complex. Some years she has like 80 to 120 tomato plants. Oh my gosh, dreamy. Whoa, right? I love it. <laughs> like hardcore. And, and understandably. She's, I love yeah, it. Yeah, no, she's pretty cute. Um, but understandably, not everybody can maintain that kind of pace. But um, especially as climate change in the world continues to change, we're going to have to become far more clever with how we source, consume, and enjoy our food. Absolutely. I love that you brought that up. I think that's another huge part of the conversation around healthy food and, and healthy eating. Um, in my mind, the sustainability component. And it's tricky. It is tricky. I think, like anything, there's so many variables. It's very hard to measure things. So if you're buying something organic, but you've shipped it from the California, how, you know, what was the water intake? I mean, there's there's so many levels. And I think that it, that's that's okay. We can, we can think about it and we can sort of say... 
to whatever degree, like you were saying, your your mother takes it to the next level with the yeah. <laughs> with the tomatoes. Maybe just grow one or two tomatoes. But as long as we're mindful and conscious of like what how we're consuming and what we're comfortable with, and I think it's a personal choice. I don't think there's a right or wrong as long as we're not just consuming blindly. And I think to realize the implication mm-hmm. that everything is connected, and we don't just buy something and it it's just there's no envi- you know there's no environmental impact or there's no natural resources or human resources that are used. So for for in my mind, something that's local. Even if it's not organic, um, we know usually there's, I mean, there's not as much, uh, there's no, dis- there's very little distance that I've traveled in terms of fossil fuel emissions. There's a transparency there. So, you know, like where, where you're getting the food. Um, and then, you know, yes, for health, you want to reduce our toxic load. So being able to buy food that doesn't have a lot of sprayed chemicals. And of course, if they're spraying large amounts of chemicals on the field, that's going into the environment and it's all coming back to us in the end anyways. Um, but the beautiful thing about today is that there is more and more options and because organics have become somewhat more mainstream, the prices have gone down significantly. So you can really be conscious. If you are, if this is part of your intention of eating, eat, um, eating more healthily, you can do a little bit of research before you go, go grocery shopping. And like, for example, in Montreal, there's a bunch of options. There's like Lufa Farms, there's a Pied Nature, which, you know, and you can kind of look up on the, on the website and see for any budget, how can I be eating in a more sustainable way and just small changes, whatever you can do. But I just think that thinking about it and even with your family and even with kids, so that they understand that food is not just about taste. It's not just about taste. It has to taste good and we need to enjoy it. But food is connected to every social, economic, environmental issue. And that's why I'm so passionate about it. Because re- whatever angle you come in from, whether you care about animals or, the, or people, you know, farmers or, um, you know, supporting local industry, it, it really health. It, it really is. Food is such a huge central part of of everything and so it's very powerful when you we when you eat you have we eat three times a day and there's you know these three t- chances we have to really make a positive impact and you know the vote with your fork you know where you're kind of really choosing to for you whatever um, is important for you that you sort of say okay um, if I buy this one item all the time um, you know like something like almonds I mean looking looking at almonds from California right now there's huge droughts almonds are highly pasteurized there's a huge processing around almonds so yes almonds themselves are healthy but then it's it's deeper than that so I actually advocate getting European almonds but then look at that you're importing from Europe Europe which is potentially farther however the production um, is less exhaustive of water and they don't have the droughts there and so it's and anyways it's not there's no right or wrong but if you're really interested if you drink a lot of almond milk I think think about that and maybe diversify maybe have you know some cashew milk or make some oat milk or rice milk so that you're not just consuming a lot of of the almonds and that's again part of the problem is that we're just growing too much it's like this huge demand because we have these trends same thing with quinoa with other things where it's just oh absolutely 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 and this yeah exactly and so back to balance i mean also physiologically we benefit from having a, a wide variety of different foods so everyone balance is just the name of the game mm-hmm. Danielle, I could listen to you all day. Oh, yeah. please. No one wants that. <laughs> Nobody I was talking and I was like, oh, a new topic. Oh, oh a new topic. <laughs> and I could talk all day. Yeah. No, this is good because it means plenty more podcasts that we can share yes. together. Yes. Stoked. Um, in the meanwhile, if our listeners would like to learn more about you yes. and your recipes and all kinds of wonderful things that you do, where can they find you? Yes, you can find me at daniellelevynutrition.com. I do one-on-one consultations in person or via Skype from anywhere in the world. And so all of these topics you can apply, but ultimately um, 
the most effective change, I think it's, it's having a personalized plan because we all are different. We all have different needs. We all have a different health history. And so I'm not just pushing services, but I really care about helping people. And so I think that's the most effective way. So if you are interested in, um, developing your diet and adopting a healthier, more sustainable diet, you can just send me an email and say hi, and we can go from there. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having bro. me. Yay. Yay. Hey. 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 Hey.